Hey guys, Ben here. Uh, got a really, really quick one just before you get into the episode. Um, I just wanted to say a massive thank you to everyone that takes the time out to listen to the Tech Cube podcast. It's a real, um, I won't say labor of love, but it's a real passion that we have over here. Uh, you know, I'm working in partnership with ECS and I want to thank all of the people that helped me put this together from Ellie to Andy uh, to Emma Frame. All of them are really fantastic. But the reason why I wanted to take this time out at the beginning of the episode is just to ask you a big, big favor. Now, wherever you listen to this, whatever platform, it, it it's really, really, really thank you for that. And it's really, really great. But what I wanted to ask you is to, to suggest some ideas of who you would really like to see. We want to get your ideas of who you would really like to see on the podcast. Normally, I, I do this and I do promotions, a lot of promotions on LinkedIn. So if you could hit me up on LinkedIn or if you can find me on Twitter, all of the details will be in the episode uh, description below. Just let me know who you would really like to see on, on the TechQ podcast and who you would like us to, to have a sit down with. We really want to make this year, 2022, a massive year. So we're going to try and move into video. But without you, it means nothing. So let us know and that will be really, really great. All right, back to the show. podcast i am one of your hosts ben shinobi and i am joined by my partner in crime andy tem hello how are you doing andy good good very uh very pleased to be back working from home now the office is under refurb so i'm going slightly stir crazy but yeah other than that i'm good yeah and of course we have a special guest with us here today he has been described as one of the top 50 influential people in technology to follow he leads or owns a consultancy and he is described as a thought leader or the thought leader of Wardley Mappings. Welcome, Simon Wardley. Hello, thank you. Uh, and thank you, Ben and Andy, for inviting me to, uh, to, to the show. It's a delight to be here. Uh, just w- one little correction. I'm not a thought leader. Uh, I'm a thought lord. Uh, as I, I don't like this term, these self-appointed thought leaders. I mean, everybody's got interesting viewpoints, interesting ideas. So I, I, I tend to use the uh, the term thought lord uh, just just because I just can't help but mock it. Now, of course, doing my research, I did look up um, sort of things that you've got on LinkedIn. You call yourself, as you said, a thought lord, a junior developer, a mapper. Uh, amongst many other things would it be a correct assumption for me to say that you don't really take yourself that seriously and or in that sense would that be correct oh oh gosh um well there's some things you know obviously there are a number of issues that i take very very seriously indeed Uh, for example uh, climate change impact uh, to our environment um, various cultural and social impacts as well I think sometimes, uh, certainly um, in business, we can get a little bit uh, carried away uh, with uh, 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 the titles that people create. There's, uh, uh, we, we sort of have this idea that we live in some sort of meritocratic society. I'm afraid there's enormous amounts of privilege and everything else in this society. Uh, and uh, so we, we, 
I, I don't like this sort of, you know, grandiose titles, I know what I'm doing sort of thing, when, it, when in many of the cases it, it's quite clear um, that um, uh, people could do with a bit of help, shall we say. So the, the junior dev opera is because uh, Kat Sweetle, uh, uh, who's a fantastic speaker, absolutely wonderful, and a mapper as well, um, uh, described this term dev opera because uh, um, DevOps was, shall we say, uh, becoming a, a, a little bit inflated with what it was. And so I, I self-appointed myself a junior DevOps. Uh, Kat, Kat eventually said, you know, uh, you know she, she gave approval. Uh, I, I'm now fully fledged DevOps. Uh, and the destroyer of undeserved value comes from Liam Maxwell. Because um, in government, I had a tendency of, uh, shall we say, um, uh, saving huge amounts of money, often by getting rid of large American consultancy firms. Um, and hiring more civil servants, uh, which is, I think, a great thing to do. Um, the uh, so and, and the thought leader, a thought lord, is just my natural aversion to self-appointed thought leaders. Um, I, it's just a term I, I particularly dislike. Um, so, do I take myself seriously? Some things, but I, I think it's always good to smile, uh, have a bit of humility, realize you know uh, we don't have all the answers. Uh, none of us do. It's always really important to listen and learn. Uh, from others, uh, often from the, the 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 most unlikely sources, I find are the most uh, uh, interesting places to learn from. It's uh, well, it's obviously very difficult to burn the heretic if the heretic is being self-deprecating, isn't it? So, you know, it's, it's, and um, and. And and that seems to be a real theme of a lot of what you pitch. And would you still go with that term junior DevOps now that you're sort of arguing that DevOps is now rapidly oh. becoming or oh, no, not no, already no. becoming legacy? <laughs> so it was, it was uh, Andy, uh, Andy and Patrick and the friends uh, who came up with the whole DevOps term. I'm trying to think when this was. Gosh, 2008, 2009. So back then we knew that um, as... Um, infrastructure evolved from a product to a utility. Uh, there were going to be a number of things that were going to happen. A, uh, companies would have inertia to that change because of pre-existing capital. Uh, I'd spent loads of money on data centers and all this sort of stuff, so therefore inertia to change. Uh, the, the second thing was it would be an exponential change. Um, uh, so it would cause, there'd be a rapid movement and a flow of capital from one to the other. And of course, that would create uh, also, uh, because the characteristics of compute would change as it moved from product to utility, you would get uh, new practices as well as new activities occurring. And we didn't have a term for those uh, new practices when I wrote about this stuff. I used to run strategy for a company called uh, Canonical. They provide something called Ubuntu. And we were like 3% the operating system market against Red Hat Microsoft. We'd mapped it all out uh, and we used that to attack the market. 18 months later, it was 70% of all cloud. Um, and that was a complete team effort. I mean, I had a small role in that. Um, but uh, we knew there'd be this new practice. And then Andy and Patrick came up with the term DevOps, and so that sort of stuff. But if you look up the stack, um, you've got things like the runtime, the coding environment that you, you build on. So previously as a product, lab.net, that was evolving and would evolve to a utility which is why I tried to push my friends Cloud Foundry into that space and they sort of got sucked down into containers, a bit low level, but there we are. Anyway, 
So as it shifted from product to, to utility, and the best example of this would be serverless, AWS Lambda, that causes a change of practice. So you now got this whole new FinOps stuff. Um, so that's the combination of finance developed together, and that's emerging and, and, and growing. And what that also means is that all the things below that level of the stack slowly start to become invisible, uh, subsumed, consumed by it, um, and become almost the new legacy uh, for most people, i.e. stuff you don't worry about. And that includes infrastructure as a service and, and um, yeah, DevOps. Yeah. Now, what's always interesting about the timing of these things is um, so what happens is things diffuse in society, like a virus diffuses in society, and then you get evolution of a virus, so multiple waves of diffusion, okay? And so that happens in economic systems, and so the evolution, we start off with genesis, the custom-built product and commodity, and utility services. And that process of evolution consists of hundreds of diffusion curves. And so what happens is at the late-stage product, You've got diffusion of like computers, a product quite widespread in the market, and that's where the majority are. And then it moves to the next curve, so it evolves. And and though you know that's the future now, computers and utility, it's the minority. So if you go around our CIOs, you aggregate their opinion. And if you did this in 2008 and said, what's the future of computing? Then we've got data centers, uh, virtual data centers, uh, more hardware. And very few would have gone, but what you knew at that time was the future was cloud. And so the same thing is happening today. If you run around and ask people, they'll go, oh, the future is DevOps, infrastructure as a service. Yeah, I know, that's great. And the minority are saying it's serverless and FitOps. Guess what? The minority win. Eventually. Yeah. Oh, well, eventually. Well, it takes 10 yeah. to 15 years yeah. for it to become the new norm. And then you've got to add on, uh, by, by that time, it's become accepted new norm. So if you think about serverless, we start, what, 2014? So that takes us to 2024 to 2029 is roughly, so it's not far away. Uh, we recognize as the new norm. But then you've got to add at least another 20-odd years for the laggards, you know, because, you know. Um, I, I, gosh, uh, there was... <laughs> I know of one example of a punch card still in operation. So <laughs> sometimes it takes a little bit of time. Yeah, I've I've sat there having those conversations about um, remediation costs for systems, and you're like, well, how many people are using the system? And they're like, well, we have 200 customers left on it because it's insurance, right? And they've got to wait for the last person to pass away before they can get rid of it. And you're like, should we just put this in a spreadsheet? Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's but no, the 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 original idea, and I was having flashbacks when I was looking at like your story of robots uh, oh, for use in there, company. yeah, <laughs> or weighing paper, and I was like, I've been there, but it was uh, sadly, I'm, I, I have to admit, it was more the gut feel than the situational awareness that you're explaining. But you just sat there going, this cannot be, this cannot be right. So, 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 uh, it might be worth just you know for. Um, um, people listening in who may not know the the, the robot example, just to quickly uh, go through that one. Oh, it's and, fantastic! Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, so one of the things I have to remind people is that you know this isn't because people are daft. Okay, people don't make these mistakes because they're daft or whatever. They make these mistakes because they're trapped by stories, often, and trapped by past context. So. 
Um, uh, and, so it's very difficult to do this in a, a non-visual environment if we're just uh, voice. But I better quickly describe this. Um, so what you've got is is stories, text-based form, are talking to each other, uh, and like Vikings used to navigate actually with stories. Uh, you know, epic stories. That's what you learn to tell you how to go from one place to another place. You follow the story, um, and then eventually we got sort of uh, maps. Uh, so Vikings started to use sunstones, all that sort of stuff. Um, now, we have a lot of things we call maps in business. Um, unfortunately, they're not maps, they're graphs. And so it's better, quickly worth understanding why. Um, with a map, you take a map of the world, and then I take Australia, and I say move it next to, I don't know, England. It changes the context uh, of, of that map. And, and Because in a map, space has meaning. Now, most things that we call a map in business, so like uh, mind maps or uh, uh, systems maps or anything like that, you can take a component, move it, and it doesn't actually change the meaning. As long as you keep the connections the same, it's still the same map. Mm. And that's because it's not a map, it's a graph. Yeah. Now, if you start mapping an environment, the reason why we map uh, is because space has meaning. And if we're talking about a landscape, it's quite a good idea to understand what that space actually means. Yeah. So, particular uh, particular company, oh, this is many, many years ago, um, they had a particular process flow, um, which was they needed compute, they would order server, server would come into goods in, they'd have to modify mount brackets before they had the compute at the end. So they had a wonderful process flow. And they had a bottleneck. Uh, so you, you think about a, like a value street map, and here's a bottleneck, get rid of the bottleneck, okay? Well, A, it's a graph, not a map. All right, just, just doesn't mean it's a bad thing, but let's, start with the fact that it's what it is yeah, yeah what it what it is yeah. and so they'd spent like six months working on how do we solve this problem this bottleneck and they come up with this plan of using robotics to do all these modifications etc put a business case together uh, it was many millions of dollars of investment blah return investment calculations over a couple of years they all look good and they're about to do it and they asked me to i was asked what did i think now the problem is They'd spent all this time working on this. They'd built this narrative, this story about why it's a good idea. So if you go in and you say, oh, I'm, why are you doing robots? You know, you're challenging their story, hmm. uh, challenging their narrative. And we've got an entire industry which runs around telling everybody to be a great leader, you've got to be a great storyteller. So if you challenge their narrative, you're actually saying you're not a great leader. So you're going to get conflicts and everything else. You can't do it. So I said, could we map this? And there was like, oh, God, the point of doing that. But, you know, all right, we did. We spent 15 minutes on this. And so a map, very simply, you start off with the user, the user needs. You describe the chain of components. And what you do is you position them on an evolution axis from genesis to custom built to product commodity. And so they went, you know, we need compute. They put it in product. I would have argued it was a utility. This was many, many years ago. I can see we can at least have a discussion. Yeah. But we're not arguing about whether you're right or wrong. We're arguing about the position on the map, whether the map is right or wrong. And that's a key thing. But they went compute product uh, requires order server goods in. They put that in more commodity. And they went mount modify rack. And they put them on the left hand side of the map in the more the custom built. And I, I looked at this and I said, uh, why have you got racks in custom built? And they went, well, we have our racks. They're made for us. Huh. And, and what are the modifications you're doing to service? 
Well, the servers don't fit our racks, so we have to take the cases off, drill new holes, add new plates in order to get them to fit our racks. And that's the bit that takes time. And that's why you need robotics, yes. And it wasn't me. Somebody just in the middle of the room went, why are we using standard racks? <laughs> <laughs> it was like this light bulb explosion moment. Of course, that just then led on to a whole conversation, which eventually led to, what are we doing with computing data centers anyway? Why aren't we using, you know, a utility cloud? But now these people were not daft, okay? But the problem is they were trapped in this environment which in the past it had made sense to use custom built racks. And yeah. so that story had just continued. And that is so normal. Um, and it's very difficult to challenge those stories because you're challenging people uh, if you're challenging the stories. And so that's why you get it on a map and then you say, I think there's something wrong with the map. You're not challenging anybody in the room. You're just saying the map is rubbish. Now, now yeah. that is an example of one of Simon's stories that he tells during his presentations and we were talking offline that's one of the ones that i vividly remember you going through during barry's conference called secon and you going through that in tremendous detail but what i wanted to actually talk about and, and get your opinion on is you talk about saying that we should we should we should back away and not tell or, or focus on the story but we've been taught that people don't buy people they buy story so are we going against everything that we've been taught for such a long time well that that's oh god that's such a fantastic and interesting question so somebody can come back to me and say well you know maps really are a visual form of storytelling uh, and a classic example of this would be J.R. Tolkien he wrote Lord of the Rings I mean the quote that he gave is fortunately I started with a map so he mapped out the entire the space, and then he he he, uh, he broke the book. And actually, Tao Klein, who's uh, wrote a book called The Puncher's Square, it's a science fiction book. He actually used Michael mapping to map out future changes, and then wrote this book, which is now being turned into a, a film and all the rest of it as well. Um, so I, you know, somebody will often will come back and say, "Well, maps are really just a visual form of storytelling." Well, it's, it's uh, you know, I can't disagree with that, that point, they are fundamentally a means of communication. So if we say really narrative story is just about communication, they're just slightly different forms. One's much more text, well, you know, a, a graph is not has the connections between components. A map is about the connections between components in a landscape that is changing. Um, now, you can start with that point of view, but there are a couple of issues. One is that we have an entire industry as I said before, which goes around telling everybody that to be a good leader, you've got to be a great storyteller. And we do this by saying, you know, your idea was great, but you just sold it in the wrong way. If only given it the right story and blah. So we, so the problem with that is that when you challenge a story, you're immediately challenging the person. So we talk about challenge is good, you know, you've got a general you know, standing there going, the troops should walk off the cliff. You know, you want somebody to challenge them. Hang on a minute, I'm not sure that's the best idea we've had. But in a story sort of laden sort of world, as soon as you challenge the story, you're challenging my leadership. And so, you know, the point about the map is you're not challenging anybody other than the map itself. So it's a way of taking it out of that environment and saying, you know, I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying, I think the map is wrong. 
Yeah, I think we've, you know, there's a mistake on the map, and we can have that sort of discussion. Um, and I did a, uh, uh, my favorite example of this um, was um, I, I mapped out, uh, I, I got into a whole bunch of discussions about culture. Because one of, one of the things you learn from mapping is uh, all these basic, you know, basic patterns. Uh, and, and there are lots of these patterns. One of them is about how there's no such thing as one size fits all project management methods. You have to use Agile, Six Sigma, Lean at appropriate places. Another um, heretic burning moment. Oh, yeah, well, I always get accused. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I used to go to these conferences, uh, this Six Sigma conference, and I would talk about how Six Sigma doesn't fit everywhere. It was heretic burning. And then I'd go to an Agile conference, and I'd say, Agile doesn't fit everywhere. It's heretic burning. <laughs> I mean, it was always, you know, just burning. Um, but the point about this was there were, um, when you looked at the map, there were also different values on the map. So on one side, there's a value which is a belief in uh, people over process. And one side, there's a value which is belief in process over people. And those can happily coexist in the same environment if you apply them in the right context. So sometimes values are, shall we say, uh, exclusive. Um, you know, and sometimes they're non-exclusive. They can coexist. And this got me into the issue of culture. And then I quickly discovered with culture that the experts, anthropologists, have been arguing over what culture means for about 150 years, and there's no agreement on this. Uh, and I was looking at all these business books who say, this is the culture you want to have. And I'm going, well, hang on. They can't even agree what it is, and you're saying what it should be. That doesn't make sense. And then um, I came across a wonderful anthropologist, uh, Margaret Mead, who wrote some fabulous books. And one of them she talked about was language was a, a, a part of culture. And because of that, it means you'll never be able to describe language, uh, culture within language. Uh, that's something called Girdles and Completeness Theorem. And so I used a map to map it out. And the way I did that was I got two groups of people who could not agree on a particular subject. And I got them in the room. And, and these two groups of people, one were a group of uh, Brexiteers and one were a group of Remainers. And I believe, believe me, I mean, any conversation, it was like, uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, what should you have on toast? It would be after war. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, uh, I mean. It's politics equivalent of West Side Story. Exactly. Was, it was, but, but what I did was said, look, I've got this problem about culture. Uh, and so uh, I, I started putting some things down and I got everybody to talk about culture and it was amazing finding the commonalities because they're exposing it on the map itself but in story form in narrative form total warfare sorry I talk way too that much is no no not at all not at all and, and actually this is part of because when we started discussing this as a topic for World of Podcasts I got obsessed with looking at the methodology because I go deep down badly and focus on the detail and it was Ben who actually pulled me back and said no it's about the context around it and the conversation and what it engenders and we looked at and funnily enough when I took that lens to it suddenly the whole mapping discipline made much more sense about setting the context for these broader discussions and um, and I think that's a perfect example of it so for example 
where you're talking about not being able to describe culture within the language because you know the language i guess comes with so many preconceptions baked into how we form words just basic things like gender and stuff and how mapping is a useful topic for taking that apart really and just depersonalizing the whole discussion um that hadn't really occurred to me before i started looking at it in terms of how it sets the context of the story i think ben's point about stories is perfectly true but your point about the the I think the map itself allows you to set a context for the story because you actually talk about there's a story to the products there's a, in that evolution that goes across the map and um, mm -hmm. so I think there's room for both really but incredibly interesting when you start mapping that to things like culture and your articles on video games and and what culture means to everyone involved but that idea of taking such two such competing groups and getting them to work through it how did that end did they at least I was reach agreement on how the map looked or... no I, I mean it was incredible at the end we came up with quite a um uh, uh should we say a complicated and at parts complex map many many different cultures the collective the values the behaviors uh, within that the, the very much the histories uh, within that, so the symbols that we use, the rituals we use, etc., uh, connected all the way to you know um, enablement systems, uh, uh, concepts of uh, uh, individual of me and we, uh, and you know the collective aspect of it in, against individual agency. This is all on this map, and out of this came all sorts of patterns. Uh, that we can use. I mean, that sort of stuff has gone into all sorts of interesting direction. You talked about uh, gender. I worked with a, a group uh, that was talking about, um, you know, uh, identity, sexual identity, mm. and its connection to sexual orientation, gender expression, uh, lived experiences, and then out of this gender identity, concepts of self, uh, patriarchy, hierarchy, values within this roles, power relationship, and it's an amazing map. It just shows you just the components that are evolved and at the very bottom of this are things like phenotype and uh, genetic markers yeah, yeah, which is yeah, almost yeah. like irrelevant yeah. to the entire discussion far more important oh, yeah, yeah yeah and your yeah. idea of using the user the stakeholder as the anchor really does give you a view on what's really important here and what underpins what and that was a, a completely new way of looking at things for me yeah. um well, I'm going to say thank you to Ben then, because obviously you made <laughs> yeah, my yeah. writing and it didn't help, and it took Ben to tell you. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, but that's often the way our conversations go. I disappear off looking at the footnotes, and Ben is like, no, no, stop, think. This is no, what it's a Ben's the vision guy. It, it makes for a good, it makes for a good, I'm going to sorry to say it, it makes for a good story because people want to be able to know the back, the back, the back story to what, what we're talking about. But that also does bring me on to a really good point. Um, you know, in again, in your presentations, you talk about how you were the CEO, or you explain it, the, the chief other officer of uh, for Tango, um, which was yeah. a um, uh, it, it done with photos, correct? Yes, yeah, well, it did about 16, a whole bunch of different businesses. Uh, but but then uh, it was started with online photos. So how, how you do you? Yeah. yeah. How, how did how did that go? And and again, uh, that was a very, I feel that because you mentioned it, it was a, quite a very pivotal time for you yeah. to realize something about yourself. So from that experience, what did you actually kind of like, uh, what, what did you take away from that experience? And what did you use 
when you were moving yeah. towards going and starting your own consultancy and researcher research um, uh, group in leading edge forum. Okay, so so that, let's uh, just clarify just a later bit of history. Uh, leading edge forum is part of uh, DXC. It used to be part of CXC. It's just a it's department. It's actually not called the leading edge forum now. It's going to be called DXC. I think uh, they're, they're coming up with a new title for it. My okay. my apologies. Uh, no, 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 no need to apologies. So it's it's so anyway. Um, gosh, and there's so much of the sort of story I haven't told. So uh, basically, um, I was working for myself for a time. Uh, I had been doing all sorts of interesting work for all sorts of different companies. I used to run things like security for uh, 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 Mohammed Al-Fayed at Harrods and all this sort of stuff. Fascinating, really, really interesting stuff. This is IT security. Um, and anyway, a, a friend of mine um, gave me a call and uh, said they were at this company called Fatango. And um, I was really interested in 3D printing. And he talked about online photo services and what it was doing. And I thought, well, that's really useful for the image transfer and 3D printing. So I came along to have a look. And so I, I, I sat down and had a look at the company and uh, basically uh, said to my friend, can I have a look at the books? Looks at the books. I said, right, you're bankrupt in six months. The technology is a complete mess, et cetera. It's a disaster. And he said, do you want to join? And I went, all right. So, so, so I, I joined the company <laughs> and, and um, uh, we managed to sort out the technology to and, and cut a lot of the cost to extend us a long, long way. And then we got required by uh, Canon, who basically came and bought us for the technology. And, and we expanded in there and I took over uh, the running of the company. I was the, uh, oh God, I was the CTO, CIO at the time, but then I was the COO because we can only have one CEO in Canon. So um, I, you know, I ran, it was an independent subsidiary. Okay. And, yeah. um, and you know, we grew the businesses and all the rest of it. So we had about 16 different lines of business were sort of um, uh, overall very profitable. And in the beginning we'd had to borrow millions to keep going and then we became profitable. Um, but it sort of didn't fit in. And um, I was trying to work out what we should do uh, in the future. And um, the problem is I, I, I was giving all these wonderful statements about our vision, where we should go and blah. Uh, it was just made up nonsense, I was thinking to myself. I mean, these just, you know, there must be a proper way of doing this. I, I didn't really have a, uh, I was worried eventually everybody would rumble. Because I'd never done an MBA. Uh, and um, uh, mapping is now taught for a couple of MBA schools. Right. I thought you must have learned all of this stuff at MBAs. You didn't realize back then you did. Uh, and so I was just like, oh, what are we going to do? And um, so I, I thought, well, I, I, it was a bit of a loss. I ended up in a, uh, a bookshop, actually. Um, it was in London. And I was talking, I, I'd been reading every book on strategy I could find, getting nowhere. Uh, and the bookseller, she, I was talking to her and she said, had you, have I read um, Sun Tzu's The Art of War? And I'd never read it. And so she advised me to get two copies of the book. Uh, great sales. Uh, but, but it's more because they were different translations. And so she was advising me to get different translations um, because they're all subtly different. I'm so grateful for that. I mean, um, because it was in reading the second translation that I noticed that uh, Sun Tzu talked about five, five factors that matter in competition. 
uh, have a purpose, a moral imperative. Two, understand your landscape, uh, the environment you're competing in. Three, understand uh, the uh, climatic patterns, the heavens, how the, the landscape is changing. Then understand doctrine, your principles of organization. Then you're into leadership gameplay. And this sent me on a journey into looking into landscape. And um, I sort of back then thought, well, this is obviously what you learn at MBA schools, how to actually understand your landscape. Uh, and I hadn't done an MBA. And so I, I, I ended up creating my own, what I call cheer, uh, cheap, cheap and cheerful way of understanding your landscape. Right. And so I started to use it. And I, we used it and we identified a whole bunch of opportunities. Uh, we built the world's first serverless environment, uh, uh, which was in key JavaScript front and back end, billing for function, all this sort of stuff. Launched it just before Amazon launched EC2. And then we were able to adjust it to build on top of EC2. And it was growing like hotcakes and everything else. And it was like, wow, this is fantastic. And because um, I didn't map political capital, uh, just on the day that we were sort of announcing it all and everything else, big splash open source, um, uh, I, I was told that we were going to outsource all the company to a big outsource provider and shut it all down because, you know, this stuff, cloud stuff, wasn't the future. And um, and uh, I, I was, you know, I could have a comfortable life in the parent company, shutting this down and blah, and I thought, hell, hell no. Uh, and so I, I left. <laughs> and, and the mapping just turned out to be, I sort of went around telling people that I do this mapping stuff while I was doing other jobs. And it just grew and grew and grew. And then people started, um, I suppose, what happened. It took about five or six years. I was you know, used to talk about mapping and I'd show people maps and blah. and But it never sort of twigged to me that people didn't know because I sort of still assumed this is what you learn how to do at end business school. Yeah. And uh, so I was in this particular meeting in government and there was a problem. And so I quickly matched it and said, that's where the problem is. And Liam, who was the uh, CIO for UK government, is a good friend of mine, said, that's great. What's that? And I said, that? It's, it's a map. <laughs> and uh, it, I've never seen one of those before. And it was like, really? And so I, uh, and it was just like, it's sort of, my name's a really good friend. He hasn't seen one. And so I was with a group of other CIOs. And I went, you've all seen this, haven't you? And everybody was like, no. And so I'd been teaching all my friends in the open source and other place world and <laughs> things like this. And then I started to discover that people didn't have maps. And, and that was the sort of accidental shocker. So <laughs> I'm a complete accident. I just stumbled from one thing to another. Oh. You know, or innovative, and oh, um, sure. and um, and and to your point uh, that you've made in talks previously, the timing may have been good, but probably didn't feel like that if you're out banging that drum for five years. But when I saw your great analogy of if the Battle of Thermopylae he didn't have a map but showed a SWOT analysis instead, I'm currently in the first year of my Open University MBA, and I look up and I'm looking <laughs> on my wall. <laughs> I've got a Porter's Five Forces oh, okay. and a SWAT diagram and a SWAT diagram. Mm. And I was there going, well, that, that, I'm feeling quite targeted now. <laughs> was, uh, but yeah, no, it, I mean, it's mind flowing, you know. 
Well, I wasn't. It, it wasn't like I was like, oh, I've got to teach everybody how to do this and blah de blah. It was. It was more. Uh, I found this stuff really useful. And so I would go and talk about it at conferences, and people would go, oh, we, where should we use Agile? And I'd go, well, look, do a map, and that's where you use it. And people say, what's that, a map? And so it was just basically friends and uh, people I knew, because I, I did a lot of speaking in the open source world. And so people in those communities, and it just grew and grew. And then when I, I co-wrote something called the Better for Less paper with a group of other people, Mark Thompson and Liam Maxwell and other, so, uh, this was for government. It's back in 2009, 2010. And then it started, you know, oh, this stuff, you know, if you use a map here, it would help you. And it started spreading government. And then it just became clearer over time uh, that people weren't mapping. And that bit was a shock. So it wasn't the fight to get people to map that was a shock. The shock was discovering that other people weren't mapping. Because I sort of assumed if I'm doing it, Therefore, everybody else must be doing it. That is the, that's the one thing that I think holds back a lot of people is that the you've had the eureka moment where you tried it out and you're like, oh, wait, no, they're not using it, but it's really useful and they're finding it useful and you're getting feedback from your environment. I struggle with the exact same thing. It's like, if I know it, other people must know it. But there is a... You, there is always I tell myself now there's no assumption that everyone knows what you know and if you have just test it out and try it out on the universe and the feedback that you get back from the world is what you can use moving forward and it's and it's um you know it's a result of what you've built with mapping which like I, I can't say it enough going to Seacon it was like the second talk of the day and I was just in awe just like that was amazing it was like yeah it was eye-opening I think I was I was hooked <laughs> from the time you said this isn't a map and you brought a SWAT diagram and it was like oh my god I've been taught my entire existence this is a map and it's not and it's not and you're right it's not it's not yeah so you know, that was that was a, a eureka movement I want to see what Andy's gonna say now doing his MP. no 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 I was just laughing because I think that was the example but after we first started discussing this, living where I do, I jumped on the tube and I was there, I was looking at the map and I was like, it's a topological diagram, it's not a map. You know? <laughs> because I'd been, wa been watching that, that Seacon um, yeah. speech mm -hmm. at like probably about 20 minutes beforehand, I was just like, oh man, it's not a map, it's a diagram. So, so yeah. the YouTube, um, sorry, the YouTube, <laughs> the tube diagram. It gets everywhere, yeah. Well, the tube map. Is an interesting yeah. one because um, there's sort of like a specialized case where the anchor itself is um, so is is constrained. Um, so to explain this, if you think about a map, um, you've got a position on the map. What, you, what the map is showing you is the options around you, places where you can go. If all the options are narrowed down to the lines themselves. So the relationship between components are in fact the only choices you have. And uh, then that's a special class of map because you still yeah. have anchor position of movement. But what it is, is uh, the, the tube map, it's a map because you can't, you know, you don't go down there with a drill <laughs> and create yourself a new tunnel. <laughs> I mean, you, yeah. you can't go off the lines. Yeah. But when you see most things uh, and they say, oh, it's a map, then it, it's a, uh, uh, it's a graph it's because you do have other choices you don't have to just 
follow those paths. There are other options and other possibilities which are not expressed mm. in, in that particular. And that's why you need a, a landscape uh, to sort of, well, you need space to have meaning in order to understand that landscape. So yeah. it's a little bit more technical, but, but uh, so I can see the argument for uh, the tube uh, map being a map because it is constrained in terms of the options to the lines and lines alone, and there's no other movement beyond the lines. It's got, but almost it's got every a... other thing called calling itself a map, and I go, hang on, there are other options here. You know, you don't have to modify the uh, the servers to get them to fit the rack. There are other actual possibilities. Yeah, yeah there's this exploration space out here. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the um, but it but it's interesting because one of the things that you were discussing when you were talking about maps was that idea of the distance between things and the time it takes to get from one point to another. And um, that for me, because I think we baby stacked ourselves. So you see things, for examples, where organizations will actually co-opt the tube map to express a process and they'll they'll take that coloring and that because it's something that people get and that sort of stuff. And you, you baby step yourself into this position where you're saying this process flow is a map. And of course it isn't because it doesn't talk about the time it gets from one to the other. It doesn't create that distinction that, that you did very well about um, where something is mature, where, for example, six signal would apply all the way to the other end of the spectrum where something is a bit more unknown. Something Ben and I have often spent a lot of time with clients trying to explain is you, you understand this, outsource it. You don't understand this, don't outsource it. Don't outsource mm -hmm. that problem. But articulating that has always been a challenge in getting customers to accept bits that they don't understand as a challenge. The map as a as a mechanism and as a vehicle for sort of saying you you don't understand this, you do understand this. Uh, I can't wait to apply that. Yeah. Have you tried mapping at all? No, no, I've not had time. I've got your book. Ben certainly has, but I'm going to be incorporating it into my practice. So but, yeah. in the future, definitely, yeah. I think I need to read through all, all the, the chapters in in that you put on um, on Medium and go from there. I've in a few. I've got a few things that I need to read up on, but I haven't used it yet in practice. So, uh, one of the hardest things about mapping is just starting. Uh, right. So I, I normally say it takes about seven years to get good at maps, and the first six years and nine months is going. I really need to start learning how to map, and the last three months is actually doing the work. <laughs> um, and, and so there's, you know, mapping has grown because there's a wonderful community. People like Kat Sweetall, people like Ben Moss, who I thought runs uh, something called Learn Wardley Maps, uh, and uh, there's an entire community. They we even have Map Camp where you know uh, 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 people from all over the world. Um, it's all virtual conference now. Uh, join and talk about maps and you, you get maps being used from everywhere from NASA and Planet Labs to the UN to, it's just amazing some of the stuff that they come up with uh, it's incredible uh, but there is a wonderful community out there uh, it's all creative commons as well so everybody can help themselves uh, and a lot of kind folk out there as well they all spend time um, but I suppose the the hardest bit is just starting yes. and, and when you start think about the user Think about their need, think about the components, then ask the question how evolve those components. And the other thing is don't worry about the map being wrong because all maps are imperfect representations of a space. So they're all wrong. 
very true. All right, so, so don't worry about that. The critical thing is the conversation. So you get the map out as best as you can, and you give it to somebody, you talk to somebody else about the components. It's the discussion that comes out of that. Oh, we're back to narrative again. <laughs> I think that is an amazing way to, to kind of round off the episode. Um, Simon, I wish we had more time. I wish we could speak to you because honestly, we, I could speak all night, get a, a beer and just just listen to stories and ask you questions. I'd be delighted if we should do that at some point. And what we should do then is we should, since we have the same problem, we should sit there going, here's the things that we assume everybody else knows. <laughs> 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 yeah, if you ever want to upset people, it's when we list out the assumptions and then I remember sitting there once going, right, and now we need a plan to validate each of these. And that really upset people. It took like twice as long as just listing out the assumptions. But yeah, no, definitely. Simon, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. And thank you for being an amazing guest. Um, oh, it's a delight. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Andy. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're def we might have to get you on uh, later on in the year just to see what you're up to and, and go from there. But yeah, definitely. It's been an amazing conversation. More time next time. I'm going to book you for two hours next time. <laughs> 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 to talk about but yes, um, Simon, thank you. And Andy, as always, thank you again. Um, you have been listening to the TechQ podcast. Please like, share and subscribe to your friends, 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 your dog and <laughs> everyone else. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy the episode and see you next time. Thank you. Bye bye.